we've, we've lived the journey. If you're in this room, it seems to me that most of us have lived the journey of raising your children and try, you know, praying that, that God would um, engage their lives in deep and meaningful ways. And if, uh, if your journey is at all like mine or every other human being that I know, there have been some difficulties along the way. Like there's, there's no real good manual to raising your children. Isn't that true? And what's really fascinating to me is just when you've kind of figured out one of your children, then the second one comes along and rewrites the script. So I, I remember this one moment so clearly. It was, just, it was just this moment where I really thought, wow, I think I'm starting to lose my mind. So um, we had both of our boys. Peyton was probably in about grade nine at that time. Cole was in grade six, I think, six or five or six. And, our, and, and it just struck me how different our boys were. Uh, Peyton's a little bit more like me when it comes to academics. That's not his favorite part of life. And so we've had to help encourage him to spend a little bit more time in his academics. And he would, every once in a while, forget his books at school. And, and then we'd get home and discover there was actually homework that needed to be done. And so that created um, conversations, if you will, around our table. And so then we began to try to manage the process. So every day when I would pick him up from school, I would just walk through all of his subjects and I would go son have you remembered this book have you remembered this book do you have this you can imagine how joyful those moments were right after school when we would kind of work through the checklist I remember this one day we worked through the checklist at school yes dad I've got it or fine and so we got home and it was about eight o'clock at night and I heard him on the phone with his buddy and he's talking to his friend about a test that's happening tomorrow and as he came off the phone I said to him I said hey son when I picked you up from school I thought you told me you had no homework that you needed to do tonight. He goes, Dad, I don't have any homework I need to do tonight. I said, but didn't I just hear you on the phone with your friend Connor talking about a test that you have tomorrow? He goes, yeah, Dad, but tests aren't homework. I said, son, tests are homework. Let me be very clear. From now on, tests are homework. Do you have your books to study? No, Dad, I left my books at school because tests aren't homework. I'm like, they're homework. And so I remember just thinking to myself, like, when will you learn, child? And then as it's, it's like 8, 8.30. Just as I'm speaking to Peyton about the need to focus, you know, on his tests, see it as homework, do his work, my youngest son, Cole, who's like grade six, begins to pull books out of his bag. And I look at him, I go, Cole, what are you doing? He goes, well, Dad, I'm, uh, I need to do some studying. I'm like, what are you studying for? He goes, well, I have homework, Dad. I need to do my homework. I said, son, you are not doing your homework. He goes, why, Dad? I have to do my homework. I said, buddy, it's like 8.30. It's time for you to go to bed. You're not doing homework. And I said to him, every time you tell me you have homework, you don't actually have homework. It's usually not due for another two or three weeks. So I actually don't believe that you have homework to do, son. You're not doing homework. Go to bed. Peyton, you're not going to bed. You need to do homework. And I remember just finding myself in this moment thinking, we're not surviving this. Like, this is not, we, we're not working within this environment. You know, it's so amazing to me how, as a parent, you know, it's funny, when I, was a, when I was a youth worker before I was a parent, I thought I had this whole thing figured out. I used to say to people when I would do parent seminars before I had teenagers, my seminars were much better than they are today. You know, they had a, I had a nice little formula. It would fix the issue, solve it, we could move on. Now they're more like mutual therapy sessions, I think. We kind of get together and we, we work through our issues. But there's probably few things in my life right now that I think create a level of anxiety than, than my longing to see my kids move forward in life well, you know? And, and, and what I wrestle with in, in my own journey is, have I been faithful in doing what needs to be done to pass faith on to my kids? Peyton's in grade 12, you know, and we're, 
where, where in the next few months, we, we launch him into his next stage of life. And just over the last couple of days, we've been having these conversations. And, you know, have we prepared him to be ready for this next phase that he finds himself in? And there's, there's elements of anxiety and concern and care that we're continuing to work through as we, as we wrestle through this stage of life. You know, it's really interesting. When it comes to issues of anxiety, concern, care, that we probably live in a day and age where when I speak with young people in particular and ask them about how they're doing, the language of fear, anxiety, concern, probably comes up more than I've actually ever heard it before. And we know this is a human condition that we've, we live within, the sense of trying to figure out how to live well and faithfully in the, in the culture and the environments that we've been placed in. But it seems to me that especially with our young people, we're seeing issues around mental health, anxiety, fear, and concern be more significant than we've seen before. Part of the work that our organization does is we do research on how faith formation is happening in the lives of adolescents. And as we've done lots of reading and work over the last little while, one of the things that we've discovered is that there seems to be a real change in our young people when it comes to issues of fear and anxiety and mental health. We're told that from 2000 to 2016, adolescents who experienced at least one major depressive episode increased by 60%. That's between 2010 and 2016. And then we began to do some work in the areas of how social media and technology is affecting the, the, um, the, the lives of our young people. And here's what we found. Three hours or more per day on smartphones were, um, were uh, when a student spent three hours or more days, uh, more, uh, if a student spent three hours or more per day on their smartphone, they were 34% more likely to experience at least one suicide-related outcome than kids who use them two hours a day or less. And a suicide-related outcome was this idea that I have no hope. There's no reason for me to be here. I don't know why I would go on. There's a deep underlying of anxiety that just seems to be present in their life on a consistent basis. Among kids who use electronic devices five hours or more a day, 48% had at least one suicide-related outcome. And so it seems to me that where once there was kind of a normal fear about different stages of life and how we function and live within them, Instead of just normal fears, it feels like in many ways that we live in a society that seems to be more and more controlled by anxiety, where that, where that actually becomes a defining reality of life as opposed to just an experience we have to work through. And so as I look at this and I work with my own boys and I reflect on my own life, the question that I'm asking myself is how do I begin to handle these, this anxiety and this fear and this, and this wrestling that I deal with on almost a daily basis? Well, Scripture speaks to this, of course, doesn't it? And in Philippians chapter 4, Paul speaks specifically to the issue of dealing with anxiety. In fact, Philippians 4, 4 to 7, and many of us are familiar with the passage, is probably the primary passage that deals with the issue of anxiety and fear in the Scriptures. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Here's what he says. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? He says, the peace of God which passes all understanding 
There's, there's an element that's actually hard to understand, incomprehensible to actually understand how this could be. How could it be possible that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship, there could be this deep-seated peace in the midst of this, of this journey we find ourselves in? He says, this peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, oftentimes, when we think about our culture, and our culture speaks to the issue of anxiety and fear. Part of what they say is you need to remove yourself from the situations that create the anxiety and the fear. But that's actually not what Paul says here, is that? In fact, what Paul says is that we should rejoice in the Lord always. He's saying in every circumstance, we have an opportunity for this to actually be our reality. And Paul's experience was severe. When he was writing this passage, he was in prison He thought that his life was probably soon to come to an end. He was completely out of control. If anyone should have been defined by fear and anxiety, it should have been Paul. But instead, he comes to us and he says, hey, there is a peace that you can have. A peace that guards your hearts and your minds in Christ that will consume the core of who you are. That word guard is a really interesting word. When you you begin to understand the Greek, you begin to see that that word guard is actually a military term. And the imagery that Paul was using in in his cultural context was this idea that there might be a city that is under attack from a great enemy. And there would be this sense of fear and concern that would take place, of course, as this enemy force began to surround and move in on the city. But what happened is what what, what, what the imagery is, is that in the midst of this battle that's coming, a friendly force would come. And surround the city that the, that the people found themselves in. And it was a larger force. It was a significant force that would surround the city. And while the battle would be going on out here, at the very center, there was a sense of peace. And there was a sense of, of control because they were protected well by this other force. Right in the midst of the chaos and the difficulty, there was this peace because of the protection that they were being, that they were being given in the midst of this time. And what Paul is saying is that, is that what God calls us to is such an experience where in the midst of the chaos and in the midst of the difficulty and in the midst of the overwhelming circumstances in the heart of the storm, we can have our hearts and our minds guarded. That there can be a type of peace that begins to govern us as we look to take the next right step in the circumstances that we find ourselves. So then the question is, how do, we, how do we access this? And here's what I think Paul says throughout the scriptures. What I think he says to us is this, that if we want Christ to guard our hearts and minds, we need to fight to place Christ at the very center of our hearts and minds. Here's what he says in the passage, right? And this is the point that I want us to walk away with, that that if we want to allow Christ, if we want to experience Christ guarding our hearts and minds, then we need to fight to place Christ at the very center of our hearts and minds. He says it in at least three ways here. Let's start at the very beginning. In verse 4, listen to what he says. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Now, uh, you know, at first glance, when you look at that, when you look at that part of the verse, you go, okay, I, I get that. Of course, I want to rejoice in the Lord. I get that. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. But I, but I, think, I think there's an interesting element to that verse that sometimes I miss. I think sometimes when I think about rejoicing in the Lord, and I think I am rejoicing the Lord, if I really step back, one of the questions I've started to ask myself is, is it the Lord that I rejoice in? Or is it maybe just the gifts of the Lord that I rejoice in? Have you ever processed that? 
Like, is it actually the Lord that I'm rejoicing in? Or might it be simply his gifts that I'm rejoicing in? Um, you know, most of, um, my, my wife is a, great, is a great gift giver. And I'm, uh, I'm excited. She's going to be here this morning for the second service. So she couldn't join us on the first service. I apologize about that. I would, I would love for you to be able to meet her. But she will be here for the second service. And it's her first time that she's come up here. I've come up a number of times. This will be her first time. But my wife is a great gift giver. And, um, and I always get excited if, if she brings me gifts. And, and she learned it well from her mother. I remember when I first started dating Jen, her mom gave me a couple of wonderful gifts. And they were shirts, and I'd never had shirts that were quite that nice, and they were a little bit more costly than the shirts that my mom would make for me, because that's how my mom would deal with clothing. And so I was quite excited about that. And Jen's carried that on. If I'm, if I'm generally wearing a piece of clothing that is somehow um, appropriately representative of the situation I'm in, it's usually because my wife has dressed me in some way. So can you imagine if, say, today, this shirt, let's say I got this from my wife, if at some point I spilled coffee on my shirt in between the services, and Jen showed up here after um, this service was done, and I came to her and I said, babe, shirt you gave me? She's like, yeah. I said, "Um, coffee got spilt on it. She goes, oh, that's too bad. I said, yeah. I said, I think you're going to need to get me a new shirt. And she would be, "Mm, pardon me? (laughs) And I would say, no, 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 babe, like, um, I, I really need this, uh, I need a new shirt. In fact, I think, Jen, if, if you don't get me a new shirt, I'm not actually sure that we're going to be able to carry on with our plans this afternoon. Okay, so now she would look at me and she'd go, I'm not sure we're going to carry on with our plans this afternoon anyways. That's actually, you know, that's how the conversation would go in that moment. But can you imagine if I came to her and I said to her, I said, hey, Jen, like, if you don't get me this new shirt, I think maybe our relationship might not be able to move forward. I mean, of course, it would be shocking, wouldn't it? Because what it would reveal is that we never actually had a relationship in the first place. Isn't that true? And yet I find myself sometimes in a conversation like this with the Father every once in a while. As long as my life is healthy, as long as I'm financially doing okay, as long as my kids are falling in line, everything's great, I love Jesus, it's wonderful. But I'll tell you, you put the pressure on and all of a sudden the finances struggle, All of a sudden, the health begins to fade. All these other situations begin to come up. And every once in a while, I find myself going, hey, God, where are you? Hey, God, why aren't you looking after this? Hey, God, if you don't come in and fix this, I'm not sure we're going to be able to go on. And and in those moments, it causes me to step back and all of a sudden ask the question, hey, am am I actually into Jesus or is it just his gifts that I'm into? And there's a confrontation that the Spirit begins to do in my life. And I think this is the confrontation that Paul is actually giving to us. He says, people, we don't simply rejoice in his gifts, we rejoice in him. That no matter what the situation is, we come to Christ and we say, you are enough. I love you, not just your gifts. What you have done for me on the cross has transformed me. The reality that you are still with me is amazing to me. I will follow you, not just your gifts, it's you. This was the ethos of Job, was it not? The reason that Job, when he lost everything, in the midst of his weeping, in the midst of his mourning, that was real, the tears were real, the pain was real, even in the midst of this, he could say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He could say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How do you say, blessed be the name of the Lord, when you've lost everything? The only way you say that is when what you have lost is not everything, when Christ is everything. And we can never lose Christ, my friends. 
When we surrender ourselves to him and we give ourselves to him, he comes and he changes and he transforms and he remains and we don't lose Christ. And when he becomes our vision, that changes us even in the midst of the storms. If we want Christ to guard our hearts and minds, we need Christ to be at the very center of our hearts and minds. And the first thing we need to wrestle with is, is do I rejoice in the Lord or is it just his gifts that I rejoice in? Paul says we need to rejoice in the Lord. So first he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. I love that phrase, the Lord is at hand. And when we look at that phrase, we understand that that could mean actually two, two things. Uh, first of all, it could mean that the Lord is here, that he is present, and this is true. We know the Lord is here. You know, I think in one sense, it's probably appropriate for us when we pray to invite God to come. And it's not so much that we want him to physically become present in our environment. It's probably more a statement of we want to acknowledge that we are open to your presence, Father, right? That's probably more what we mean, because the reality is God is here. Is he not? I mean, this is God. And to be honest with you, he actually doesn't need our invitation to come in. He is the king, you know? He's the king. And so more and more, my prayer is not so much, God, would you come, but rather, Lord, could you make me aware of your presence? Could you remind me over and over again that you are here because you are this is reality. This is true. And so there is this sense in this passage that the Lord is at hand. He is here. But not, not simply does it mean that the Lord is at hand. He is here. But there is also this very real sense that the Lord is at hand. He's coming again. That the king is coming again and he will make right all wrongs. And he will restore creation. He will renew and recreate what has been broken because of sin. He is at hand. This is not the final chapter. And he's not far off. You know, it's hard for us to imagine, isn't it, here now to go he's not far off because life seems to be plodding along. It was really interesting when, when, when we were raising kids. I'll, I'll never forget, people would come to me and they would say, Sid, it's going to go so fast. It's going to go so fast. And I would like, I, I remember I would think to myself, you have no idea what you're talking about. There's nothing fast about this right now. Like I remember, I remember we lived in Lethbridge, Alberta, and it was the middle of winter. And I was seat belting, you know, I was, I was buckling both of my boys into our vehicle, just trying to get them to quit squirming and trying to get the seat belt in. It was very cold. And I remember just thinking to myself, what? What a wonderful day it would be when my boys could actually buckle themselves into their seats. How cool would that be? And I just thought, it's so far away. Like, will we ever get to the place where they will actually buckle themselves in? And then all of a sudden this year, we're trying to graduate our son. Do you know what I mean? And suddenly it's just like, oh, what happened? It was just a blink. It was just a blink. It goes so fast suddenly. And you can't, you can't be convinced of it when you're in the moment. But when you get to the other side, you go back and you go, so fast. I think the Father, he says to us, hey, I'm at hand. I'm coming, and I know it's hard for you to see it now, but this isn't the end. I am coming, and I will make all things right, and I will renew all things. The Lord is at hand. He is present. He is present. And I think what we need to do is we need to create space to become aware of the reality that he is both here and he is coming again. And that's hard for us to do in a culture that seems to be moving quickly, where we're so easily distracted, where there's so many things going on, but we need to create this space to become aware of the reality that he is here and he is at hand. 
And when we do, we become to, he, he begins to transform us in the midst of his presence. And as we become aware of who he is, and in comparison, the things that we are dealing with, they begin to fade in comparison to who he is, because nothing compares to our Father. Here's the point for this morning, that if we want Christ to guard our hearts and minds, we need Christ to be at the very center of our hearts and minds. First, we need to wrestle with the idea, is it Christ that we rejoice in, or is it just his gifts? And we need to continue to fight to see the beauty of who Christ is above and beyond just his gifts. Second, we need to become aware of the presence of Christ. We know that he is here. And not only is he here, but he is coming again as well. The Lord is at hand. And then third, we need to put ourselves in positions of continuing to trust in the goodness of Jesus Christ. So listen to what Paul goes on and he says. He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And this is really uh, an interesting way of praying that Paul is calling us to. Uh, you know, as a youth pastor and as a youth worker, there have been times where we've tried to engage our students in different faith practices, you might say. Different practices that can help us understand who God is in a deeper way, become more aware of his presence, know that he's at work. And one of the things that we as youth workers often do is we'll, we'll set up a journaling system for our kids. And we'll get them to have a journal. And in their journal every day, we'll ask them to write down their prayer requests that they have for God. And then in another column, we'll get them to write down all the different ways that they see God answering their prayer requests. So write down the prayer requests, wait, see how God answers, write down how he answers, and then acknowledge him and, and be thankful. You know, and it's, and it's a way of just being aware of him, of actually experiencing God. You know, when, when we did a research on what's significant in passing faith on to the next generation, of the young adults that we interviewed, for those who are fully engaged in church and faith, one of the number one things they said to us was that we needed to have experienced God as a child or an adolescent. We needed to have a moment where we could say we experienced God. And if they could say that, that was really profound in long-term faith in their lives. And so one of the ways we help Make, bring that into reality is we get them to just acknowledge how, how God is at work. So when we read this idea that, with, that by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, we might think that's the practice Paul is talking about. But that's actually not quite the practice Paul is talking about. If we understand the text, he's actually saying something a little differently here. Listen to what he says. He says, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. He's not saying let your request be made known and then wait and then be thankful. He's saying that while you make your request, be thankful. And here's what I think he's saying. I think what he's saying is, hey, write your request down. That's great. And then write down all the different ways that God might answer that request. And as a parent, when my boys make requests of me, I understand that there's times I'll answer requests in ways that they might not necessarily appreciate. You understand that? But I'm asking them to trust me, that I actually know what's good for them even when they can't quite clearly see it. So sometimes I might say no because I actually love them, because I actually see a bigger picture, because I want something more for them. And I think this is what God is saying to us as well. That when it comes to our prayer requests, we write down our prayer requests, we write down every possible way he might answer, and we say, thank you, God. I don't know how you're going to answer that, I know what I'd like, and I'm making that request before you, but I trust you. 
I trust that your way is good. So however you answer it, I'm going to be okay, God, because I trust you. You are my father. And I don't just trust you because on a whim or a dream or a possibility, my trust in you is rooted in the love that you expressed when you went to the cross for me. You know, his word says in Romans chapter 8 that if God did not spare his own son, how much more will he graciously give us all things? And the all things he's speaking about are all the things that we need to do and live the way that he is calling us to live. And so we rest in this reality of who he is and we come to him and we say, I trust you. Even though I don't see it, even though the experience is hard, I'm going to trust you, God, that you are good and that you are loving. And that trust is rooted in what you have so clearly done in the past. And so I trust in your promises for the future. And this is what he is calling us into. This isn't easy. This is so hard for us. And when we say that we need to fight to make Christ the very center of our hearts and minds, the truth is, it's a fight. There's a battle here. David expressed this battle. In Psalm 42, we see this this fighting that David is engaging in, where he's actually taking his mind and he's preaching to his heart. Listen to what he says. He says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Did you hear this? David is actually preaching to his heart. You know, I think in the seasons of our anxiety and our fear and our struggles, I think we have a couple of options. I think in those moments we can allow our emotions and we can allow our hearts to control and define our mind and control and define how we think and how we see things. Or we can look at David and instead we can come back to the truth. And for us, it's the truth of the gospel, the reality of what Christ has done on the cross. And the truth is that he is alive and he is with us now. And we can take that truth of the gospel and instead of allowing our emotions and our heart to control our mind, we can take that truth and we can begin to preach the gospel to our souls. And like David, we can say, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Put your hope in the gospel. Put your hope in the reality of what Christ has done on the cross. And the reality is that he is risen and that he is here and he is at work. Even when we don't see it, put your hope in God and we can renew our hearts by preaching the gospel to our souls. Oh, my friends, we have to preach the gospel to our souls. We know as a church we're committed to preaching the gospel to others. Mission is at the very core and center of Ellerslie Road Baptist Church. Absolutely. And I love that. But maybe before we go and preach the gospel to others, we need to continue to get in the practice of preaching the gospel to ourselves. And we have to remind ourselves over and over of the reality of who Christ is. That we rejoice in the Lord always. We know the reality that he is here because he is risen from the dead and he is coming again and he will make all the wrongs right. And we need to rest in the reality that he is good. So that even as we present our request before him, even before he answers, even without knowing exactly how we will answer, we can trust that he is good and we say, God, I might not see it, it might be hard, but I trust you are good. And so I will rest in you. I will rest in you. 
If we want Christ to guard our hearts and minds, we need Christ to be at the very center of our hearts and minds. And this is our battle. This is our battle. You know, um, one of the great gifts that my boys have been given is they have a a legacy of generations that have fought to make this reality. They have grandparents. They don't have great-grandparents with them now, but they did for a while. And they have grandparents, and they have parents, and they have cousins who love Jesus. And I'm so thankful for the history that they've been given. I'm so thankful for the examples and the stories that they hear of, of how mom and dad have, have lived faithfully and, and worked to rest in the Father. Even when the, when the seasons were hard and the farms didn't work. When they almost lost the farms here, here, and here, and, and they trusted, and God was faithful and carried them. And I love that they get to hear these stories. Our role in, in passing faith on to the next generation may be most effective when it comes to issues like these. When in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the fear, in the midst of the anxiety, we have peace. And when the generations see that, it transforms them because they know there's something real there. I mean, listen to, what, listen to what Paul says. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let them see. They're watching. They're following. You know what's really interesting to me? When we, when we did our research with young adults about what was most important in their lives as a child or an adolescent when it came to faith formation, do you know what they said to us? It was, it was really fascinating to me. We asked them lots of questions. We, we, um, we interviewed a number of young adults. And when it came to like um, gathering to do Bible study together or family devotions, they actually hardly ever brought that up. They rarely talked about that. Now, some did talk about it, but when they talked about it, they mostly talked about it actually in negative terms. And here's what they said to us. Our family would bring us together for devos or Bible time But if it didn't make any difference in how they lived out their life the rest of the week, that became something very negative in terms of our faith formation. Do you know what they said was incredibly positive? The ones that were most committed to Christ were the ones that said, my parents, I mean, they would gather us and we would do that. But what was most transformative to me was what they modeled. We watched our parents. They would get up in the morning, they'd read the scriptures, they'd pray, and they trusted in Jesus even in the difficult moments. And we watched how day in and day out, they just kept kept coming back to Jesus and it was transforming who they were and how they lived. What was fascinating to me is that we began to realize that faith wasn't something that was simply taught to the next generation. It was something that was caught by the next generation. And how we continue to press into Jesus, how we continue to fight to make him the very center of our hearts and minds may be the most significant gift that we can give to the next generation. My friends, thank you so much for your fight to faithfully surrender and submit to the Father, even in the midst of the difficulty, even in the midst of the anxiety, even in the midst of the complexity. Because here's the reality. If we want Christ to guard our hearts and minds, and not only our own, but if we want Christ to guard the hearts and minds of the next generation, then we need to fight to have Christ at the very center of our hearts and our minds. And that will transform everything.
Father, I love you so much, and I thank you for who you are. Lord, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. And Lord, as long as we breathe, our journey isn't finished. It's just not finished. We need you so much. I pray, Lord, that you would shift our affections, that we would rejoice in you, not just your gifts. We're thankful for your gifts. We love your gifts. We, we want your gifts, but more than anything, move us to want you, Father, to rest in you and to rest in your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. Let us rejoice in you. Uh, Father, open our eyes to the, to the presence of your Son through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you are at hand. And not only that you are here, but you are coming again. Lord, there is, there is so much to come yet. Give us a vision of this reality that, that you are coming. And then, Father, I pray that you would renew our faith, that you would continue to be the author and perfecter of our faith, and we would trust in your goodness even when it's hard to see. That, Lord, we would, we would be reminded over and over again of how your love was so infinitely expressed in your work on the cross. And so we can trust that you will continue to express your love to us now, even when it's hard for us to understand. Help us to know that you are good. Help us to rest. Lord, guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. In your name.